Hey there, welcome in to another edition of What Barry's Talking About from Barry 360. I'm Dan Blakely. On this week's program, more weather watches and warnings this week. Seems to be more of them than in past years, and much grumbling on social media when the storm doesn't develop, at least not in your neighborhood. We get the goods on how Environment Canada decides when to issue a watch or a warning and why Simcoe County is not the easiest place to forecast bad weather. Of course, some weather warnings result in school bus cancellations, which brings a whole new level of anger to social media. What goes into the decision to cancel the buses? We'll hear from the Simcoe County Student Transportation Consortium. There's a new raw and reflective calendar out, local residents bearing their soul and themselves to raise money for Gilda's Club, and we get our weekly insight into the fortunes of the Barry Colts. But first... We could all use a little laugh this time of year. The dead of winter, not much sunshine, Christmas bills coming in. Timely then, the Talk is Free Theatre is presenting La Bette, described as a modern comedy of classical insanity at the Five Points Theatre. Director Dylan Trowbridge has been leading rehearsals in Toronto, trying to keep a straight face. Dylan? So yeah, it it is is about fun. (laughs) I'll tell you, my first encounter with this play, I was wandering the streets of London, England, late at night, or sort of late at night. And I heard this buzz and all this laughter, and it was people spilling out of the theater of, of La Bette uh, on the West End. And I, I didn't know the play, but I thought, um, whatever these people have just seen, I want to do that. I want to make people feel like that. It was, they were sort of brimming with joy and excitement. So the play, uh, so I went and I read the play, and it's about a 17th century street clown who's being insinuated into the, the royal company of France by, by this powerful princess. So... It's sort of a collision of, of high and low art, uh, all written in, in rhyming couplets. It's sort of a like really fast-paced, it's very funny comedy, but with a, a real um, heart beneath it all. How challenging is it uh, doing something with in, in rhyming couplets? I will say, and I wrote the playwright this, David Hurston, I think it is the most challenging text written in the 20th century. So while it is very, very funny... It is also an enormous textual challenge to our ten actors. Um, it's like it's like doing Shakespeare, but with more modern language, so it's easier to understand. But in terms of the demands on the the instruments of the actors, it's as challenging as it gets. Can you give me an example of some of the dialogue? Oh boy, um, <laughs> I got to get my script. So I'll just say the first few lines. So the, the, the Moliere-type character comes bursting out, and he says, I shall not tolerate another word. And the other guy says, but Elamir. And he says, enough. I heard. It's just, it, they finish each other's sentences with rhyme, so there's a kind of thrill to the, to the discovery of the rhyme that happens in it. But I, I can't do it justice um, because my memory can't grab onto the right, the right piece of text to tell you, but it's... I'll tell you that there is a 30-minute monologue in the middle of the first act where one, char- one character is just riffing, and it's, it plays almost like Shakespeare meets stand-up comedy. It's quite something. I really think that it's—I don't think anyone will have seen anything quite like this play and especially this performance from Mike Medjewski. It's one of those things that you can have a lot of fun with. Well, we're finding ourselves doing it accidentally in rehearsal, not finishing each other's sentences in rhyme or, or rhyming our own um, our own thoughts and, and falling into that iambic pentameter that the uh, the play is written in. But it's, we do we do work. We're working really hard to make it very accessible as well. So it, it sounds, I think, to someone, it could sound like it's um, complex to understand, but it is, I think, quite clear and very funny. 
going to be interesting talking to all of you after the play has finished its uh, short run just to see how you're speaking. Yes, exactly. See if, we're, if, we, if we've uh, adapted our speech to iambic pentameter and rhyming couplets. Now, I was reading that uh, this didn't play so well on Broadway, but in regional theaters, uh, it, it does very, very well. Any idea as to why that uh, has happened? I, I, I did a lot of digging into the production history. So, yeah, the original Broadway production in the early 90s uh, only played, <clears throat> I think, for about a month or so. Um, but then it, then a London production opened and was a huge hit and, and won all sorts of awards. And then they, they revamped it um, in 2010, and it was a huge hit on Broadway and the West End. And that was the production that I, that I heard spilling out into the streets of London um, with Mark Rylance and David Hyde Pierce from Frasier as the stars. Um, but, you know, I think, it's, I think it's a difficult play to produce, partly because of the demands of the roles of, of Valère. There are only a handful of actors in the world who can play this part because of the combination of uh, comic genius and, and textual mastery that it, that it requires. A lot of people who can handle the text just aren't funny enough to do it, and a lot of people who can handle the comedy don't have the, the classical theater chops, I think, too. So it's a, it's a bit of a unicorn of a role. But yeah, I don't know why, why the regionals, why it's, why it succeeded so much, and, and I'm not sure what the, the issue was with the original production. I gather it was very good. I just think maybe, maybe audiences weren't ready for it at that time. You're in rehearsals now in Toronto. I can only imagine what's going on down there. I'm going to presume they're going well, but you, you, you must all be in stitches from time we to time. We are constantly in stitches. Uh, we're making each other laugh. We've been, cause we, yeah, we've been rehearsing for a few weeks now. We're into our, our fourth week of rehearsal because we do five-day uh, weeks, unlike many theaters, which is a nice, one of the nice bonuses of Taka Street Theater. Um, but yeah, we're constantly making each other laugh. We're really experimenting and playing and pushing the envelope um, with, with the comedy. And yeah, it's a good time. <laughs> Having a lot of fun. And, but we're also really challenged in a great way by the material. Performers must have to be very, very disciplined to get through a performance of, of this nature without laughing themselves in the middle of it. Have you noticed that when you've, when you've attended other performances of, of this play where, where the characters uh, kind of lose themselves in it as well? Well, I've never seen another production of this play, but I, I will tell you yesterday we were, we, we were, uh, there were a couple of people having a hard time holding it together in a few moments. We tried some new, some new bits, I guess I'll say, yesterday, and... and uh, if the actor's reaction to them is any indication, I, I think uh, they should work pretty well with the, our audience. Dylan, thank you so much for your time today. Good luck. I'll look forward to uh, seeing you when, uh, when you bring the play to Barry. It was my pleasure. I look forward to seeing you too. Again, Labette opens February 2nd for a limited run at the Five Points Theatre. For ticket information, log on to tift.com. Still need a wall calendar for this year? Even if you don't, you might consider buying the 2023 Ron Reflective Calendar in support of Gilda's Club and the work they do on behalf of people living with cancer and their families. Barry 360's MJ learns more about the calendar from its creator, Sharon Smith, and Aaron Lutz, executive director of Gilda's Club. Always just really a fantastic project. Um, for, for people that aren't really familiar with it, what is the concept for, for this? The concept of this calendar is an opportunity to showcase people within the community who have uh, been living with cancer, have had a, a, a journey with cancer. Uh, inspiration came five years ago 
We've had four calendars. The first one, the theme was the reflection of time. The second one in 2021 was courage when the pandemic hit, because it would take a tremendous amount of courage to not only face a global pandemic, but have a cancer diagnosis as well. 2022 was connections. And 2023 this year is about grit. So I found 12 different people within the community who had their journeys, and I matched them up with 12 different photographers. And with some strategically placed props, we (laughs) have an implied naked calendar. That's the raw side of raw and reflective, and reflective being a little little blip, a little story about a part of their life that could possibly be inspirational for somebody who is either living with somebody with cancer or have recently had a cancer diagnosis. So it's inspiring. It's a community effort. The design team has grown. I've got graphic designers now and social media experts, and it's just a really great opportunity for people to share and to be able to support Gilda's Club. We've raised almost $100,000 while people were saying, oh, people only use digital calendars. Well, I beg to differ. When (laughs) stories are touching, people do want to support. And we are preparing for 2024 with the theme of purpose. I was wondering, when you did your first calendar, was it hard to get models that were willing to do it? And is it easier to do so now that people have seen sort of what the project is about? I think people want to share their stories. Being a hairstylist, I get people that sit in my chair every day that just want to know that they make a difference and that they matter and want to share little bits about themselves. So when I put it out there, I mean, to talk 48 people into taking their clothes off for a calendar, it's, uh, you know, everybody finds that funny. But the, the truth is that they are raw, emotionally raw, and willing to to share and they were inspires huge huge fundraiser for gilda's club um every year how how much does it affect your guy you guys well gilda's club does not receive any government funding so we can't provide free cancer support without the community stepping up and helping us make sure that we have social workers to run programs and connections and our organization in the last years had people as young as two and celebrating their 95th year using our services now these are people with their own cancer diagnosis, but we provide support to the family members as well because a cancer diagnosis just doesn't affect one person in a household. So we provide those uh, programs so that people can help put things back in order because, you know, as tumultuous as a pandemic is, this is an everyday journey of someone going through cancer. And I think Sharon really kind of talked about when people want to share their stories is they want to feel connected and they want to have a community. And our whole purpose is so that no one goes through cancer alone. And there's been so many stories over the years of how not just our programs, but how efforts like this help build community so people do feel connected. They do feel that they're part of uh, a system that's there to help them when they need that help. And how did this um, partnership between you guys come about? The idea came to me after so many people were sitting in my chair and telling me their stories. And although breast cancer is one of the, the most common cancers, there was so many stories about kidney and bladder and skin. And I thought, well, I'd like to find a place that can support all of these people rather than just specifically breast cancer awareness. 
or, you know, a, another body part where cancer has affected. I know every year it's a great fundraiser, but is there any set goals that you would hope to, that this calendar brings for Gilda's Club this year? Or Well, I think every year we look to be able to make sure it raises at least $20,000. But when people are purchasing these calendars, really 100% of these proceeds are going back into the programs that we offer. Uh, so, you know, ideally we can find, you know, people who are the sponsors on these uh, great calendars. We've done a great job with that. But every calendar sold really adds to providing more support. You know, we not only do programs and activities for anyone impacted by cancer, but we're starting to work on things like mastectomy kits that we're providing free to Royal Victoria Hospital, or really a Soldiers Memorial Hospital, South Lake Regional Cancer Center. We have people because of the pandemic and our virtual programming that are quite literally across the province using our services because we are only one of two Gildas clubs in Canada. We have people in Ottawa, people in Thunder Bay, people down near Sarnia, and everywhere in between who are connecting in and using our services. And this exists right in town. So when you talk about sharing, uh, looking at what charities to do is that your money stays in this community. We are helping a lot of people in the community, but we're so valuable that people outside are saying, we wish we had this too. So it's uh, it's great that we're able to provide this. We still need people's support and to be able to, whether it's a calendar or whether it's getting involved in other ways. But um, the calendar's just been a great artistic, expressive way for people to learn and people to get involved. All right, perfect. And you said that you provide services virtually, of course, to like other it's places. It's virtually and in person. So mm-hmm. today we have uh, actually something called a soup social. And it's been at capacity for a week where we have 20 people that are coming on in and they sit down and they just, have soup. And you wonder how important is uh, soup to, to someone? Sometimes it's an hour of not having to think that you have cancer. For other people, it's making connections with others because they don't have the same support network in this community and they're looking to build that. So there's friendships that are made, relationships that are made at, uh, at Gilda's Club, and I see it every day. So um, it's so important that we wind up providing these opportunities because not everyone has that same friend network or that family network that they can rely on. Where and when can people grab a calendar? You can get a calendar for $25 at Connect Here Studio or at Gilda's Club. And on our website, if you go to uh, search up Gilda's Club Barrier, Gilda's Club Simcoe Muskoka, you'll see that you can actually buy that online. A little shipping and handling. We'll get that on out to you. And again, all those proceeds are going to our free cancer support programs, not just for people with a cancer diagnosis, but for family and friends as well. The Barry Colts still making their way toward the OHL playoffs. Gene Pereira, the color man for Colts TV broadcasts, and the guy who writes the game reports for Barry 360, joins our Will Conkin with a look back at a trying week and a look ahead to a three-game road trip. What was your uh, biggest takeaway from last week? They had a 6-5 overtime win against Owen Sound, then lost to two tough teams, Ottawa 4-1 and Windsor 8-7. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a pretty tough week when you look at the schedule. And then I think they played six games in uh, in ten days, and uh, it was a busy schedule. January is a busy month for the Colts, so I think they, uh, you know, looking at it, they went four and two. And obviously, the two games on the weekend against Ottawa and Windsor, uh, two of the top teams in the country, certainly the two top teams in the Ontario Hockey League, were provided quite a test and when the Colts look back I mean they both present kind of different challenges Ottawa a 4-1 loss against a team that the top defensive team uh, in the league and uh, Barry it was 1-1 there and I think it was a game where they ended up losing 4-1 including an empty netter that they look back and a game that they probably should have won and talking to Bo Gelsman is one of those things where he said that how do we they you know added to the 1-0 lead when they had numerous chances 
it probably could have been a different outcome. But again, that's an Ottawa team that's very good at being patient and, and kind of pouncing and taking, you know, taking care of their opportunities and uh, capitalizing on them, and then limiting the chances that uh, the opponents have. Uh, against Windsor on the weekend, uh, the Saturday night uh, was a great atmosphere, sold out Sadlin Arena, which was great to see over 4,300 fans. Uh, really created atmosphere in there, and you know, obviously these are two of the top teams in the league looking to test one each other out. And uh, it was a complete opposite of the Ottawa game in that it was just a wild, um, a wild game right from the drop of the puck, a ton of goals, you know, seven six final for Windsor. Uh, and, uh, again, a game that, you know, probably Coach Marty Williamson, while I know when talking to him, wasn't too happy in terms of defensive uh, hockey, but he was proud of the guys. They got down 7-4 there late in the second period. And, uh, you know, usually uh, you get down 7-4 to a really good hockey team, uh, you know, you know it's you can kind of maybe kick in the bag there and and just kind of, pack it in, but the Colts did anything but, and they actually ended up scoring twice late in the second, and then once early in the third to tie it, uh, and then at 7-7, and then, uh, of course, uh, uh, Windsor, midway through the frame, uh, got the go-ahead goal in the, wins, uh, in the winner, and Barry had numerous chances in that one as well, but, uh, you know, looking back, there were two stern tests, and certainly didn't get the, the wins they were looking for, but... You know, and talking on the Braden Hashes and a couple of the other Colts, you know, they said that it proved that they could play with the top teams in the league. And the uh, the tough test doesn't end for these guys. They're heading uh, southwest, I believe, for three games in three days, Friday in Kitchener, Saturday Flint, and Sunday in uh, Saginaw. What are you uh, looking from the Colts during the upcoming stretch? Yeah, obviously this is a team that, you know, is going out on the road here and, uh, uh, you know, it always presents a challenge, a road trip, and it starts Friday night in uh, in Kitchener. And, uh, you know, we're a Rangers team that has kind of been a, a bit Jekyll and Hyde uh, this season, but there's no doubt, uh, certainly talented, made some big acquisitions ahead of the trade deadline, and they've been playing well of late, so the Colts are going to get their hands full there. Another stern test with another of those big teams from the West. You know, again, I, I think they have to get back to playing that defensive hockey that they've been so good of late, and really it's what's kind of uh, had their turn, uh, their turnaround here since December. They've been a much better team defensively, kind of limiting chances, and that kind of got away on Saturday, and Windsor's a little bit more run and gun than I think what the Colts uh, have been uh, using for success, uh, and uh, I think they need to get back to that. Again, this is a Kitchener team that can also uh, put the puck in the net, so they'll have to be sound defensively if they want to start the weekend off well there. Yes, is that kind of is that first game on Friday kind of uh, key for the rest of the weekend for those other two games? Yeah, I think you know when you when you talk to coaches about that, there's there's no doubt that you know that that opening game of the weekend kind of uh, sets a, a a bit of momentum for you going in the rest of the way. And you know, Kitchener's always been a tough building to play at. It's it's one of the the great rinks for anybody who hasn't had a chance to go. If you want to go see a great uh, a junior hockey game in a great facility, uh, the old odd there at, uh, at Kitchener, very reminiscent of the old Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens. And uh, it's just uh, a, a stunning room with, uh, uh, sorry, a stunning arena with just uh, a great atmosphere. And, uh, you know, if you get a chance to go down and watch Barry this Friday, uh, in Kitchener, uh, you should take advantage of that. But, uh, you know, again, I, I think just going in there, 
Um, you know, it's been a tough building to play in over the years with Kitchener. They've always had really good hockey teams. Uh, but I, I think going in, when you look at it, if the Colts can get win, especially after those two losses, they'll be hungry to get back. You get that win in Kitchener, then all of a sudden you're facing a Flint team that maybe is a little bit lower in the standings that you've had success with over the past few years. And then Saginaw, which is an interesting team, which had started off this year really well, but they're looking more to the Memorial Cup next year and hosting it. And uh, they made a trade, a couple of trades, actually kind of unloading a couple of top players uh, uh, there and, of course, acquiring Hunter Hate from Barry. So uh, another interesting matchup there. Well, hopefully the Colts can get some wins on this road trip. That's it for now. Thanks again, Gene. Perfect. Thanks, Paul. The Colts enter this weekend's action in third place in the OHL Eastern Conference. What Barry's Talking About is a weekly podcast featuring the best Barry has to offer and more. We've covered a lot of ground since we began in mid-July. We've learned the Barry Public Library loans out more than books, video games, and DVDs. It also has fishing rods, snowshoes, and more. We talked with an Aurelia girl about her efforts to save the monarch butterfly and found out how shipping containers are being used for transitional housing in Barrie. You can get caught up and make it easy to keep up in the future by subscribing to what Barry's talking about through any podcast distributor. Still to come on what Barry's talking about, the process behind issuing weather watches and warnings and how that can lead to school bus cancellations. Now this. Our community rocks. Hi, this is Anne-Marie Kungle with the Alzheimer's Society of Simcoe County requesting your support. This January, all of Simcoe County is invited to join us in Lighting Up Blue to put a spotlight on Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Together, let's show 11,000 individuals living with Alzheimer's and other dementias and their care partners that they are supported. Be a dementia champion and shine a light on the importance of dementia-friendly communities. Bulbs are available at the Alzheimer's Society's very office and at several local businesses. For more information, visit Alzheimer's Society, SimcoeCounty.ca. Our Community Rocks is brought to you by Peggy Hill, broker of record, Remax Hallmark, Peggy Hill Group Realty. Barry's Rock Station, Rock 95. This is what Barry's talking about from Barry 360. I'm Dan Blakely. Not many days go by this time of year when we're not under a weather advisory, watch, or a warning. Sometimes they pan out, sometimes they don't. Sometimes parts of our forecast area get hit hard and others don't. The Christmas period, a good example of that. To get a better understanding of how Environment Canada tracks storm systems and decides when a watch or a warning is warranted, and the intricacies in our area in particular, we invite a chief climatologist for Environment Canada, David Phillips, to our studio. David, take us behind the scenes at Environment Canada. You have all these eyes watching computer models and satellite images, and then something sets off alarm bells. Well, there's a certain adrenaline rush when you have all this kind of weather breaking out from uh, which can cause people hardship, the impacts that it has. It's really uh, an exciting moment. I mean, we're not wishing for it if uh, uh, we want people to be safe and secure and and that happens. But, you know, it really was, I think, when I look back at it, I think it was about 10 days prior to Christmas. I mean, it was that, first of all, there was that really heavy snow that occurred um, around, I think it was the 15th, 16th, 17th, mid-month. And, uh, and certainly in, uh, in Barrie, we got about 18 centimeters of snow. Um, and uh, in, in the Toronto area, they, they got about um, 
at 27 millimeters of rain with six centimeters of snow. And then right away, Dan, people started talking about this weather bomb, this beast of a storm, this this generational storm that was brewing in the middle part of the United States, uh, west of the Great Lakes, and was going to affect millions of people across the um, uh, United States and Canada. And so all our eyes, there was no gap there, no relaxing to say, well, we got our, our it's going to be a white Christmas. No, no. This thing was coming, and it was coming at the timing of the of the kind of the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then, of course, Christmas Day. And then, uh, so people were very nervous about it. We were seeing this, this deep cold going all the way down to Texas, picking up some moisture from the Gulf of Mexico. And that, you know, you know, you don't get weather when you have just cold air. You don't get weather when you have warm air. But when the two get together, it's weather wars. And this is essentially what happened over the heart of North America, the center of North America. The cold air duped it out with the warm air, the moist air, and you had this incredible bomb. Uh, I know we talk about it as a weather bomb. It's a legitimate term. It's an exploding kind of storm that just changes overnight. This thing was forecasted, and it was everything in the lexicon of meteorology was included in this. But the thing about it is the temperatures. You looked at the temperatures and there was some kind of concern because they were around zero. That's the sweet zone. You're not sure what you're going to get around zero. If it's minus eight, hey, it's snow. You shovel it, plow it, and push it. (laughs) If it's plus eight, it's just going to be rain and possibly local flooding. But this was minus one, plus one. So are you going to get the snow? Are you going to get the rain? Are you going to get the freezing rain, the ice pellets, or a congealed mixture of all of the above? And essentially, everything was included in the forecast because we knew of this system 10 days. And we even got a weather statement out 10 days prior. This thing is coming. We don't know all of the characteristics of it. But, hey, we're not going to miss it, you say. And as the days got closer and closer, it, it, it ramped up from another weather statement that was a little bit more specific. And then all of a sudden, a watch and then a warning. And, you know, people were just were worn out by just the information overload of all this. You know, in the old days, people used to say, well, at least we just, you know, had to worry about two days in advance of the storm. Well, you know, we don't hold on to it, you know. If we, what we see and we want to get people out, they can make alternative plans and, and what have you. So as it turned out, Dan, I mean, it was, in fact, that we were further north of the system. Um, then the United States got hammered, Chicago, Detroit, uh, Niagara Peninsula, into eastern Ontario, Montreal, and what have you. But here in our area, we were sort of almost on the sidelines looking at this misery happening. In that particular event, we got about 12 centimeters of snow. So 18 centimeters the previous week, 12 centimeters during that kind of the Thursday, Friday kind of uh, of event, and, and maybe a little bit into the Saturday, the Christmas Eve. But then it was the next day, I think, that caused a lot of grief for people locally, even for myself. I had my family was coming up from York Region Christmas Day to have Turkey at our place, you say. And uh, they phoned me mid, mid-morning and they said, should we come? I said, what do you mean, should we come? I'm looking out the window and seeing not a flake of snow falling. And they said, well, we hear all these horror stories about, about up in the Barrie and Aurelia and Midland area. And I says, well, you know, I've looked at the radar. It's kind of north of us, but, you know, I mean, suit yourself, you know. And they came and were, were shocked that there was nothing there. I'm I'm surprised that they even doubted you. 
<laughs> to be fair, though, Aurelia and Midland areas and further north, they did get a lot of snow. They did. So I, I think it's one of the trickiest things in the wintertime to get right. We can't always get the – we get the occurrence possibly. We don't get the, the timing, the duration, or the amount of snow. And so we err on the side of say, okay, this is what we expect. This is what our best guess is. But uh, some of it is the watch to be, hey, you know, be aware of it. Others is a warning is look out, you know. I mean, it's, it's on you. It's happening right now. And so I don't think we were, I don't think our forecasts were wrong. I think they may have been maybe people just heard that, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, 40 to 70 centimeters of snow. And they think up in the Lake Simcoe area and the Georgian Bay and, and Huron, and they think everybody's into the same pickle. And when it comes right down to it, everybody might be in the same pickle because you're not sure where that lake effect burst is going to happen. And if it's going to stay steady, oh, that's bad. That's a Paul Bunyan snowfall when it stays steady. Or does it move? Are the winds kind of shifting and everybody gets the bit of the misery? Or is somebody getting it getting, all? Oh, I remember uh, an extreme example was Buffalo, not this time, but, but uh, maybe about eight years ago where there was snow up to the roof lines of people, and yet in the neighborhood within walking distance, there was no snow. So it's these, these are monster snow effect engines, and we know we're familiar with them. We know that you, you rarely get the, the forecast right. I mean, we would rather say it's going to be this and it's less than it's going to be this and it's a lot more. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's clearly a life or death situation for some people. We live in a tricky area yes. too, right? We've got w- bodies of water all around us and, and that has a tremendous impact on, on what happens. Oh, it certainly does. I mean, it is really a wonderful area. I often call it the, you know, the, the area of four seasons, but the water affects it. The elevation affects it. Even soil type sometimes can affect the, really? the weather conditions. It's almost as if it's a, a myriad of microclimates in our area. And, and, you know, a short distance can make a whole difference, especially when you're dealing with lake effect. If you're dealing with just a weather system coming in from Texas, no problem. Everybody's going to get it, you say. But when it's the, the cause, the trigger is local, a local phenomenon like lake effect – and it depends on how warm the water is, if the water is ice-covered or not. What time of the year is it? Of course, Christmas is always vulnerable because the lakes are wide open and they're like hot tubs out there. And if you get that really cold Siberian air that comes across, that difference between the air just above the ground and at the surface where the water is, 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 is huge. And there's the transfer of energy is just phenomenal. And then it comes across the land. And if it's a rough land, oh my gosh, it just absolutely squeezes out that moisture. And so if it's something like around Sarnia, places like that, well, it's kind of gradual. But in our area, because of the, of the Bruce Peninsula and, and the mountainous kind of thing, and then the, the updrafts and the down, oh, it, it's very complicated. And, and we will never, 20, 50 years from now, we'll still be struggling with this thing. Now, we might be able a little bit more geocentric. We might just say, well, okay, it's going to be South Barry as opposed to North Barry or something like that. But it is still going to be, um, hey, we can put a person on the moon, but trying to get the forecast right for the next day is one of science's greatest mysteries. 
So we get the severe weather warning, which can be followed by school bus cancellations, which brings a cavalcade of complaints via social media. Working parents left in a lurch in terms of childcare for the day, others wondering why the buses have been parked when there seems to be no severe weather outside their door. Again, we go to the source for an explanation in hopes everyone leaves with a better understanding of the process. Barry 360's Ian McLennan in conversation with Sean Levisser, the Simcoe County Student Transportation Consortium's safety officer. Well, first off, let's just talk about the consortium itself. How many students are you responsible for getting, you know, to school and back safely? So we transport about 36,000 students on about 720 vehicles, and we travel about one and a half times the circumference of the earth in mileage per day in Simcoe County. And in a growing community like Barry, Aurelia, and Simcoe County, I'm sure every every September is different in terms of routes and everything, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a challenge every year to make sure we get all the students students on all the vehicles it's obviously a buzz there from mid-august until usually the end of october but uh not long after that we we get the weather yes and that's what one of the main things we want to talk about is the weather because in simcoe county geographically it's such a huge area with so many different weather components too with uh, snow squalls as we saw over the christmas break in aurelia but yet 15 minutes down the road in barry the sun was shining how challenging is that from a consortium perspective when it comes to bus cancellations because the public obviously you know it, it disrupts their day too if the kids have to be home well we're we're super cognizant of the fact that anytime we have changes with uh, transportation so whether we have cancellations or delays we know that we affect families and, and that they that trickle down effect uh, uh, in families where parents can't go to work or have to work from home or whatnot and we take that all that into consideration when we make the cancellations and uh and it's certainly top of mind, but student safety is our number one priority. Take us through briefly the protocols in place before you make that decision to cancel buses across the board or just within a specific geographical area. So initially, we monitor weather uh, days in advance. So we are monitoring weather ongoing. Uh, and what we do is either the operators or our office will trigger the call uh, the day before. So usually that's, say, on a Tuesday afternoon. We'll notify all the operators and our snow captains around Simcoe County that we're going to have a call the next morning. So they're out from anywhere from 3 o'clock in the morning till 5 o'clock checking roads, checking with township folks. They'll have people that drive specific pockets and areas, turnarounds, and, and uh, to make sure they have a real good idea of what's going on in each specific area. And then uh, we have a conference call at 5.30 in the morning to make the decision as to whether they're going to call and the operators en masse decide zone by zone as to whether we're going to cancel or run. And because you've got such a, you know, again, a wide coverage area too, and um, we've had emails, we've had messages to us saying, well, the the sun's out now, it's 9.30 a.m., but bring it back home. But when you make that call at that time, the conditions were not safe. And that's what it's all about is the safety of the kids and, and their drivers. Well, there's a lot of components that go into it. We're, we're at the bay in the mercy of, obviously, the information we have at hand with the Weather Network, Environment Canada, AccuWeather, and so on. And with that information, it, it, it's not, as we know, uh, entirely accurate all the time. It doesn't always come to fruition as it is laid out in front of us, as well as the fact that with our township partners and the excellent job they do clearing the roads, they are on their own schedule too. So we have to take into consideration, well, where are they in process and, and, and how is the snow removal or how is the sanding and salting and where are they in that process?
And you've also got kids who are being bussed in from rural areas into Barrie, too. So sometimes it's not all about Barrie, but it's the outside area that we that here in the city we have to think about as well. There's a bit of a misnomer with that because probably about 70 to 80 percent of our routes have a, an, a, like a rural component. So there's a there, we're sending that bus into the rural area and then trying to have it do a run and then come back to town. And then maybe maybe there might be, uh, you know, an urban only run on that route. But most of the routes at one point or another travel in the country. So it is super important that we take that into consideration. And um, I guess the other challenge is, too, sometimes you have forecasts where the weather looks like it's going to turn at noon hour or early in the afternoon. And you also don't want those buses out if the conditions are dangerous at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And you sometimes do have to make the call early in the morning. Yeah, the, the projection call is probably our greatest nemesis, if I'm being totally honest. That that look to see what is going to occur later in the day uh, when we do have clear weather in the morning hours, uh, that is difficult. And we try to avoid that if we, if we possibly can. Ideally, we're seeing the weather in a current window, and it's projected to continue as opposed to this could blow in at, at you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So uh, in an ideal world, most of the weather that we see in the morning is enough for us to, to, to make the decision we have to make. And again, again, you've already said it, but the message maybe to parents and guardians and those that, you know, aren't familiar with the, you've just explained the network that the consortium does. What, what would be the overall message when it comes to uh, why you do those bus cancellations? Well, like I said, student safety is our number one priority. And in the end, if weather changes during the window of time, so say we make the decision at 530 in the morning and weather changes at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock in the morning and weather gets worse, it is still the parent's prerogative to sit there and say, hey, listen, I'm not comfortable with putting my students on a vehicle and I'd feel much safer if they just stayed home today or, or I transported them in later in the day. And unless it's a really stormy day, we know um, schools are open for student learning. That's correct. So there you have it again. The main concern is the safety of the students. And that's our program for this week. Thanks to Ian, MJ, and Will for their input, to Matt Ladder for his technical expertise, and to you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to what Barry's talking about, rate it, review it. You can also keep up with what Barry's talking about on Facebook and Twitter at Barry360 and on our website, barry360.com. I'm Dan Blakely. Hope you'll join us again next week. 